was Hunderson Collectors with Throw Your Arms Around Me. My name's Rita Catoni. Welcome to Kitchen Radio, a fortnightly radio show all about food, cooking, produce, and also about some of the very many fabulous cooks we have here in Alice Springs. Well, as our gardens start to give back to us, I'm yet drawn to another avid home gardener, home cook in Alice Springs. I'd like to welcome my guest today, builder, playwright, musician, gardener, cook. Welcome, Michael Watts, to Kitchen Radio. Thanks, Rita. So lovely to have you here. Your garden's in full bloom at the moment. We had some artichokes last night and I've never tasted artichokes so lovely. I'm really keen to have a chat about how you how you cook from your garden. But to begin with, Michael, I'd be really keen to hear your, your food journey and, and how you came to be here in Alice Springs. You grew up in a in a family where hunting was like part of the family activity. Can you tell me about what it was like to grow up in a family where you were like hunting food to, to eat? Am I right? Yeah, I mean, we also, like most normal families, went to the shops too. Oh, it sounds better if you're, you know, hunting as well. But anyway. But, you know, my grandfather was, amongst other things, a professional rabbiter. And he used to make ferret nets. So we always had ferrets. Ferrets, little little animals, little furry animals. Yeah, use the ferrets to catch the rabbits. I mean, we had guns and tra- traps also, of course. You had a pair of working ferrets, and you net all the holes in a in a, a warren, a, a rabbit warren, and uh, you put the ferrets down. And then a couple of minutes later, the rabbits well, they basically freak out when they smell the ferrets coming, and they race out of the hole at full speed, and they hit the net. And then it closes around them and you jump on the rabbit, give it a rabbit killer, which is breaking its neck, and uh, put the net back. And sometimes there'll be 10 rabbits coming out at once. Wow. And, and in five minutes you can catch 20 or 30 rabbits. And, uh, and sometimes you don't catch any. We would sell the, the skins. So you skin would them. skin them yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And obviously too many rabbits. I mean, we had a lot of dogs. We uh, give rabbits away. Sometimes we would sell them. But we weren't really living off hunting like my grandfather and my father did when I was young. But I loved doing it and I used to go off by myself with a little 22, catch a train out to somewhere in the country or this, this is before we moved to the country and uh, camp overnight. With, so, I mean, a little 12-year-old boy with a 22 on a, <laughs> on a train, suburban Melbourne train, Going out to, say, Werribee and then walking five miles up into the gorge and camping overnight and coming back wow. with eight or six or eight rabbits, whatever I shot. My gun used to break in two, so I could sort of hide it, you know. I could unscrew it, take, take the bolt. And then foxes. Foxes were sort of quite, a, quite valuable things because you could get $40 and for a fox skin or whatever the price was, $30, $50. And that was like a week's wages for someone, you know. That must have been good money for a 12-year-old. Yeah, not that I shot that many, but <laughs> because uh, foxes, you know, they're tricky. They're, they're hard. Yeah. yeah. And the rabbits, were you, was your family eating rabbits? Yeah, we had a little, lot of rabbit, yeah. How, how was rabbit cooked in your, in your home? Well, when I cooked it when I was out bush, I would just skin it, get the fat from around the kidneys because there's not much fat on a rabbit, a little bit around the hind legs. And... and uh, in the buttock, and I'll just throw it into a little frying pan and just cook it like that. That's how I had it when I was at bush. My mother used to uh, make a white stew, which wasn't very good. I mean, it sort of tasted okay, but the rabbit was always tough. 
So like a white sauce with yeah. chunks of rabbit through it? Yeah. It doesn't and sound it, very appealing. No, with a you know, with vegetables and carrot and parsnips and stuff like that in it too. Yeah. But because the rabbit's so lean, you know, later on in, when I got older I learned how to cook rabbit a bit more more properly because you you probably know this that you need to baste it in some sort of fat and, and cook it very slowly so you can break the meat down a little bit more and get it tender. And then it's amazing. You know? mm. I remember doing a dish once with where I just big hunks of bacon in a big heavy pot, onion, a bit of garlic or whatever, and then chestnuts and wild rice that I stuffed the rabbit with, you know, and then cooking and then slowly adding a little bit of stock. I forget what else I want to yeah. put into it, you know. And You're the only household I've ever been to dinner where I've been fed rabbit in Alice Springs. I think you made a rabbit pie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, that's... Stephanie Alexander recipe. Yeah. It was her grandmother's recipe. It's a fantastic recipe, but it's incredibly time consuming. <laughs> did you ever shoot rabbits here? Yeah, I did. Yeah. yeah. Along back of Benstead Creek. There yeah. used to be quite a big mob of rabbits on the other side of the range there. Up Mount Swanway when I lived out at Hardest Ranch. Yeah. yeah. Um you used to be able to get them at Milner, but I haven't seen rabbit there, I think, for quite some time. No, no. I yeah. I, I keep looking for it. Yeah. Yeah. So from Killing Rabbits, you were asked to kill a cow at one point. Can you tell me how that changed your attitude towards eating meat? Okay, we had a lot of dogs and we had some old Hereford, pretty gnarly old steers up in the big tree country at the back of the So you're living in Gippsland on a farm? Yeah, by then we had bought this place in Gippsland, in West Gippsland. I think my father might have bought 20 steers at one stage and they'd been up in the back sort of hill country for a couple of years and they got big and nobody had ever looked at them much, you know. We were were pretty feral in that way. So he sent me up with the twenty-two, which is a rabbit gun basically, to shoot a cow and skin it and bring the meat down for the dogs. And how old were you at this point? I would have been about 16 or 17 at the time. Yeah. And so I'd never shot anything bigger than a rabbit or a fox, you know. Anyway, it was what you could probably call a bad kill, you know. Yeah. And I like the thing about it, if you do a bad kill on an animal, then they release a lot of adrenaline and makes the meat tough. So you, you always try to have a clean kill. But anyway, this was – took me quite a few bullets to get this uh, knee to drop – this cow to drop to its knees even, you know. Oh. And then uh, it was sort of eyeballing me <laughs> by this stage, this deer. And then I finally, finally killed it and – it's on the ground. I'm going, well, I'll just treat it like a big rabbit, you know. <laughs> they're, they're all mammals, you know. So I skun it. I pulled the guts out. You know, it's huge. And dragged it across. And then I've only got an axe, you know, and a sharp knife. And I mean, I remember carrying all this bloody meat down because we didn't even – you couldn't get up there with a car and we didn't have a motorbike, I don't think, at that stage down to the cool room in the farm and I, that was okay. The next time I went up with a, I, I, I did it about four times, four or five times. Next time I got a butcher saw so I could start cutting up and then I started getting into it. I'm getting cuts of meat out okay. of it. I'm imagining what I can see in the butcher shop. And oh, this yeah. Is, and so now I'm getting meat for the family as well, the dogs, you know. Uh, but... It's a really hard way to kill a cow, you know, on the ground. You when you skin it, because I use the skin as 
what I could cut it up on, you know. And uh, then I just, I think I might have come into home one day and said I'm a vegetarian. And that was that was a result of this experience? Yeah, yeah, killing, I was just yeah. killing the cows, you know, I think. Yeah. It was putting me off a bit, you know, but I was sort of into it too in a funny way. <laughs> and, and then uh, I was into the getting the food out of it, you know, but yeah. I wasn't into killing the cows. I, was, I wasn't enjoying that. And anyway, I said I was a vegetarian. My dad said, what nationality is that? You know, something like that. What country is that from? We're talking like mid seventies or early seventies here. Uh, late sixties, yeah. early seventies. Oh, okay. oh yeah, early seventies. Yeah, maybe nineteen seventy, and uh, nineteen seventy-one maybe. Because we, we were a farming community, and I was the first vegetarian I'd ever met. It would have been unheard of. Like, <laughs> yeah. what, what? What would you have eaten even? Well, I was sort of leaving home then anyway, so I, I wasn't home much longer after that. Yeah, is that when you decided to teach yourself to make? Bread was that part of? Oh, that was earlier on. That was earlier on. Okay. Yeah, no, we used to eat this white tip-top bread, and it wasn't that interesting. And I thought I'd make bread one day. And anyway, I followed all the rest, the recipe, and it came out. We only had a wood-fired oven, so I couldn't probably get it up really high the temperature. That's what we cooked on, and it came out like a house brick, with the you know the same structural density of a house brick. Everyone made fun of me. You know, Michael's doing weird things again. And I persevered, and the next one was not quite like a house brick, but pretty similar. And finally, I ended up making reasonable bread. You know, um, that was my first sort of in, endeavour of cooking. I think uh, I would have been fifteen or sixteen then. And then, after this period, you you had what I what I call an into the wild experience. Can you tell me how you managed to be up in the top end? Um, for what was it, eight weeks, and maybe. It well, I was up at the top end longer than that, but. But for that eight-week period, yeah, what that what I, that was about. Well, I'd always fantasised about going into the bush and just living off what I could hunt and gather, and I only ever spent a couple of nights by myself when I was young, you know, out bush, and then I'd come back home. You know? um, so I was up at the top end. I was nineteen. This is before the cyclone Tracy. I was living in Darwin and. I hitchhiked out to um, the Mary River and spent a couple of days sort of swimming in the Mary River, which was pretty crazy, but there was a moratorium on crocs then. Like six months before, it had become illegal to shoot a croc. Before that, anybody could go and shoot a croc. So the crocs were pretty wary about people still, and there weren't huge numbers like there are now. But still, I didn't even know there were crocs there. I mean, I hadn't done any research. I didn't know what food I could eat. But I did take, like, some fishing line, hooks, sinkers, obviously, knife, some piano wire to make snares, and, a, like, five pounds of muesli <laughs> as a backup, which is fair enough. You and know. your vision was? And a, and a billy and a frying pan, maybe. Yeah. And a, and a mosquito net and a ground sheet. That was it, I think. Yeah. yeah. And what was, what was your vision? What were you, what were you aiming to I'd, achieve? I thought I would see how long I could last. I didn't have an end thing. I just thought, oh, I'll try. I'll go out there and see what I can live on, you know? Yeah, in, in terms of catching your own food. Catching my own food, yeah. And uh, I ended up being out there for you know, maybe seven weeks or so. You know, the days sort of went into each other. I was, okay, I was doing pretty crazy things. In the big billabong country downstream on the Mary River, downstream towards the sea, 
but on the other side of the Mare River was some sort of dry country grassland and stuff and there were a lot of kangaroos there. So I'd swim across the Mare River quickly <laughs> every day, which is pretty wide river, <laughs> big river, and set or check my snares. I don't know what I was thinking, that I'd get this bloody kangaroo and sort of swim back with it or something, you know. You hadn't thought that far, <laughs> right? You just wanted to through. catch the kangaroo. I, and, I never yeah. caught a kangaroo, right? I never bit, snared one, you know. But... Uh, I did catch a lot of little fish, no, no barramundi. Doesn't sound very successful so far. <laughs> um, a lot of mussels under the banks. Now, that's a pretty crazy thing in a croc country. But I still didn't know about crocs. Hadn't seen any. Until one morning I'm running along and it was sort of sunrise and I jumped into this depression just along the bank. Yeah. And there was a big croc lying in it. I didn't see the croc. And I must have been had jumped into that depression before because I'd run along the bank, you know, I just used to run. I was crazy. I, mean, I love running, you know, and I don't even know why I was running, you know, it's just running along the bank, you know. Anyway, I jumped on the back of this crocodile or the, on its tail, actually. And Without realising. And it yeah. threw me off and it did something which um, a lot of people said, oh, this is, you know, absolutely um, a lie. It almost stood up on its back legs and it went like that and then splashed into the water. It, stood, it was it reared up high. Like vertical. Almost vertical, yeah. And I've told people that and they say no. And then I, years later I spoke to a crocodile, a guy who's a scientist, and he said, look, they do that on very rare occasions. He said, you know, when they're really scared. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was scared <laughs> because I'm going, oh, God, there's crocs here. <laughs> what the hell? I've been swimming in the water. So I, I walked really quietly back along the riverbank and, and it's just early in the morning and I counted 15 crocs or Whoa. something. Some little ones. And I see the eyes just in the water, you know, I'm going... Because obviously they weren't... They were staying, staying clear of me. I'm, I'm camped on the riverbank basically under a big fig tree, you know. And uh, yeah. anyway... That was about two weeks into the uh, me being there, actually. And then, but I still swim across the river. <laughs> Quickly, really, maybe. Really fast this time. I don't know what I was thinking. And I'm just lucky to not to have been eaten, you know, because if I'd stayed any longer, they probably would have eaten me. But anyway, it didn't matter. I, I did catch a goanna one day, uh, big perini. And then one night I, I heard all this ruckus on the other side of the billabong and they're big. It's like they're half a mile across these billabongs. But I could see a car and headlights and noise and yelling. And I went over ne next morning and some guys had come in and they'd rammed a water buffalo. That's what I figured they'd done with their bull bar of their four-wheel drive or whatever it was. And they just cut a leg off. It was a young water buffalo. They just cut one leg off and left the whole thing there. So I took a lot of meat out of that. I ate was, uh, what I could eat and then I tried drying it like cutting it really thin and smoking it or drying it in the sun, you know, both smoking it and on the fire and drying it in the sun. And some of it went rotten after a week or so, but look, some of it lasted for quite a while, you know. And so I had, that kept me going too, just a fortuitous thing, you know. A lucky find. Yeah, yes. Anyway, I, I came back to Darwin after seven or eight weeks. I remember coming back into Darwin and everything being bright and noisy and, and you're very in another zone. Totally in another zone, and after a week or so, and you love that. I love that feeling. 
but it slipped away. Yeah. Like that. After a week or so, you know, you're back on the treadmill. Yeah. <laughs> now, a couple of years later, you found yourself in China. Yeah. China in the 1970s isn't the China that we visit today. Early 1980s. It was 1980s, yeah. okay. Yeah, but it was in Sichuan, which is famous for its food, in Western China, in Chengdu, the capital, which was then an old ancient city, but they were busy pulling it down and building these horrible apartment blocks. But beautiful old buildings, temples, all the temples are still there and stuff, but four rivers run through it and lots of little markets where you can buy food, but... Were there restaurants? No restaurants at that stage because everyone was assigned to a work unit and a work unit could be 30,000 people, what mine was. I was at a thing called Chengdu Institute of Radio Machinery, which was like a technical college. And I was teaching teachers who'd come from all over China to, 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 to be in my class so they could read te- trade manuals and stuff so you know, they could copy Western. In English? Yeah, yeah. Yep. They wanted to uh, be able to get their students to uh, be able to basically access Western technology, you know. Anyway, the food. Yeah, so the f- food was pretty ordinary. There were big communal kitchens. You had to queue for rice, for, you, for bread, for oil. You got coupons, an allowance each month. Everyone got the same allowance. Like one gin of oil, which a gin is about, I don't know, three quarters of a litre or something. So much, so many gin of uh, rice. You know, gin's a u- unit of measurement mm-hmm. in China. And uh, so the food was pretty ordinary. Except the, mar- the food in the market wasn't bad. There were eels, chickens, carp, fish, they, everything live. You buy it live. Yep. Oh, except for the... And pork, a lot of pork. And, and vegetables? And vegetables, yeah. So people cooked at home too. People were, like, even though there were big communal kitchens, they used, people never cooked at home seven or eight years before that, but people were starting to cook at home. Because everybody was eating in these communal yep. sort of kitchens. Yeah, right. during the Cultural Revolution especially, yep. you know, in the, in the work units. But now people were eating at home. And then while I was there, restaurants started, little restaurants started to spring up. So, um, but the food wasn't great as a rule. And one of the first things I did when I got to China was I, I went to a tinsmith and got them to m- make me an oven. As you do. <laughs> yeah. And it was just a tin box with a, 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 tr- a, tra- a lid, a door, and you stick it on a gas ring. Oh, wow. That's pretty simple. Yeah. That's what an oven is, you know, a tin box sitting on a gas ring or whatever, you know. Yeah. It's uh, something to catch the heat. Yeah. So it wasn't very sophisticated, but you could do a good, good roast chicken in it or you could bake bread, you know, get a pretty good temperature into it. You could... You, because there was no baking in China. Everyone was using woks. That's in Western China. You know, if you go to the north, it was different because they used a lot more wheat in the north, whereas down rice is noodles. I started sourcing ingredients from all over China, basically. If people travelled somewhere, they would, I would ask them to pick this up for me or that up for me, stuff you couldn't get locally. And if someone was coming through from Hong Kong, I would have a shopping list. You know, 
And so I started cooking and that's when I, I, I mean, I'd been into cooking before. There was a lot to do, but you had a lot of time. So I, I, I would do these quite elaborate meals and people from all over the world came through my apartment. Yeah, some <laughs> great people, yeah. Because there were only like 30 or 40 Westerners in the whole of Western China when I first got there. So it's the people coming through were people like diplomats and other people yeah, who diplomats, were staying... Uh, people from in big China. multinational companies like General Electric who try to sell turbines to the Chinese, dodgy turbines. I mean, really, some dodgy characters too. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and mountaineers who were going to climb. And had people just heard that there's this Australian guy who's cooking from home and you're not charging for this food, no, you're just no, cooking yeah. for people, for yeah. the joy of it. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, word of mouth... Maybe they were all staying at the Jinjiang Hotel, which was a big Russian monolithic hotel where the food was absolutely abysmal <laughs> and really bad and the service non-existent. And so some of them, no people there had been to my place or something. I don't know how it happened. Yeah. And did you pick up any cooking techniques for Chinese cooking? I did because I had neighbours who, people across the hall from me, I was on the sixth floor of a brand new apartment block a little balcony, you know, each side. There's an old couple and they didn't invite me in for a meal and so she taught me a bit about cooking. I I mean, I didn't have any cookbooks or anything so I'd watch what people were doing. I was trying to emulate what I saw, you know. Yeah. And some people would show me stuff. Some of my students would help cook with me and stuff. Yeah, I mean, I find particularly with Asian cooking, that's the best way for me as well is to yeah. actually watch someone else cook because yeah. cookbooks don't quite capture how to how to cook for me. Asian yeah. cooking, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's about heat and timing and speed, and particularly that heat question. Yeah, you know, like is. I think you really need to know, like yeah. when they say hot what, how hot or what. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. So after China, you found yourself in Melbourne. You yeah. were a playwright, a critic, and you were working on a pheasant farm. <laughs> uh, quail farm. We had quail. pheasants. We had pheasant, pheasant farm sounds so much better. I know, better. I know. <laughs> the quail was our, the, the main thing that we were raising and selling to restaurants. So we had a licence, obviously, a health department licence. Just a small production. And who was buying quail at that point? Because they're talking Three, 80s. Uh, little French restaurants, really established ones in Melbourne. Um, we're only producing a about not that many, 300 a week. I'm selling them in little packs of six, you know, but they were big, fat, plump quail and sort of free-range a bit, you know, not quite, but closer to free-range than most quail. And uh, Did you get a chance to cook much with quail? Yeah, we cooked a lot with quail. I used to what was your favourite way of oh cooking or God, eating quail? I'd have to be quail for breakfast, lunch and dinner. I might <laughs> see another quail again, I'm going <laughs> to jump out the window. <laughs> We'd just have them Poor in little the, quails. <laughs> have them in a pot sometimes, uh, just in a big pot really, sometimes on the top of the stove, you know, just to sort of marinate it in a bit of wine, whatever, Bailey's. So more, more braised, braised rather yeah, than roasted yeah. or... It didn't roast that many. would had a little smokehouse, would do like smoke the quail sometimes, you know, because I was with this Romanian guy and he was a good cook and... Uh, so Gavril did a lot of the cooking, actually. And he'd always have this pot of quail. It was sort of the same pot with the same quail in it. And sometimes you figure if you didn't dig down deep enough, there'd be a quail that'd been sitting there for a week, you know, because he never cleaned it out. He just kept adding more quail <laughs> or whatever to it. There'd be 
yeah, whatever was going into it, mushrooms, a bit of brandy maybe, you know, whatever, peppercorn stuff, you know. So then towards the late 80s you, you found your way here to Alice Springs and yeah. you would have been here around about the time that Cloudy's Restaurant was. Yeah. Do you re- recall going there? I do, certainly do. It was like a special, a special experience going out to Cloudy's because the service was beautiful. The food, Mindy's food was just, whatever she did was fantastic and it was really high quality. And I, by that time I'd eaten in some good restaurants around the world and stuff because I'd lived in New York for a few years. I'd lived overseas, you know, and, and with the quail sort of experience in Melbourne, I'd eaten at a lot of good restaurants in Melbourne too, you know. I'm not saying I was a food connoisseur but by any means, but I recognised good food when I saw it, came across it, and what was coming out of Cloudy's was on par with anything, you know. Yeah. And to go there, and we'd always just sleep in the swag at Tumo and then go over and have a meal and then wander <laughs> back to Tumo. Never. Very rarely stayed in the rooms, you know. But uh, how good was how good was that? You know? Yeah, it just <laughs> does sound amazing. Yeah, we might just have a mid-show break, and when we come back, Michael, I'd really like to sort of tie this together and really look at how important having a vegetable garden is to to you now, and and what what are you actually currently cooking in your vegetable garden? So. <laughs> We were just talking about this quail farm and you've mentioned on your, your the place that you live here in Alice Springs, which is more than just a house. It's it's a garden, you've got fish, you've got so much, not just produce growing, but meat as well. You've just slaughtered a few quail, you told me in, in the break. Look, the quail are like a bit of a foul journey because quail don't sit on their own eggs. Not They've lost the ability to sit on their own eggs. So you have to incubate them and then... When the quail are about six or seven weeks old, they get quite fat and that's when you process them. But I was pretty busy last year and I didn't... And the quail were just sitting there and Cecilia, my wife, said to me, Michael, you've got to do something about those quail. So the other day, a couple of weeks ago, I said, that's Poor it. quail. I killed the whole 20 of them that were there and plucked them and dressed them and put them in little packets of six and put them in the freezer. So... They're ready to eat, you know? Yeah. Um, so we don't have quail anymore. But we have chickens, we have turtles, we have silver perch, we have bees. Yeah. yeah. So we, And then we, you've got a, a vegetable garden. Yeah, we have a, and a lot of fruit trees. And yeah. yeah. And how often would you eat out of your garden in a week? Yeah, yeah every day. Yeah. Yeah. So there's always something in there. Yeah. And what's good at the moment? Asparagus, artichoke, artichokes, globe artichokes. Big crop of broad beans on, which I love cooking with. The thing about artichokes is you get an artichoke off the bush, you cook it five minutes later. Artichokes tend to oxidise, especially oxidise once you cut them, their leaves and stuff, but they toughen up really quickly. So a fresh artichoke is amazing. So is asparagus. You yeah. can eat raw. You can eat raw. Yeah, like Michael, you gave me some asparagus the yeah. other day when I went over to chat with you and, and actually on the way home I was just snacking on it. Yeah. And it was so crisp. I just don't ever recall eating asparagus that crisp. And it was sweet. Yeah. It was sweet in a way that bought supermarket yeah. asparagus just never is. I never uh, boil or steam asparagus. I never let it touch water. Okay. When I cook it. I yeah. just 
have a bit of warm olive oil and just toss it in that and uh, put a bit of lemon juice on it for a bit of moisture and it's 30 seconds. And what about asparagus? How do you prepare and cook asparagus? Not asparagus, um, artichokes. Just a classic sort of European way. So those but ones we had last night, they they were a different style of artichoke, I yeah. don't think. What were they? I'm not sure what the name was. I've got about three different varieties. Yeah, the they garden. look quite different. And I mm. really liked them because they yeah. were just... They're very spiky. They've got yeah. little spikes on them. Weird, I, I don't know. So um, they, they had been boiled for... 15 minutes. Right, in, in lemon juice? No, and water? no just, just straight boiled. Just water. Right. That's just to soften them up. Yeah. And uh, to cook them because obviously you can't eat a raw artichoke. And an artichoke is a flower. It's a member of the Danelon family so the, the heart is the flesh in the middle and you eat the leaves and you pull off the bit of flesh off each leaf as you're going down, to way down towards the heart and you get to the stamens of the flower and you cut those out with a teaspoon or something and then you eat the heart in fact one of the ways they used to kill people as a poison was feeding them uh, the stamens from a raw artichoke that, are they that toxic no no they perforate your bowel oh, I didn't know. and you die this agonizing death yeah so it's, it's a good thing to know. <laughs> <laughs> it was an old Chinese and and Roman thing, you know, a way of killing someone. Agonising. But death, that yeah. that's from a very mature artichoke. The, the artichokes we had yesterday hardly had any stamens at all in them. You know. And yeah, you they could, had a few. Yeah. Once but... they cook, once you cook, you can eat them. Oh, okay. But you don't because they taste crap and you cut them out. Yeah. And you had served them. Looked to me like was it um, olive oil and some fried garlic. Yeah. And maybe some salt and pepper? Salt and pepper, fried and so, olive oil, fried garlic and lemon juice. And then as you're taking off each petal, I was sort of like... Dipping it in. Dipping it in there. Yeah. And I like, I like getting the garlic a bit brown and crunchy. You know, food's about presentation too. So we've got these big white, round, sort of flat soup bowl sort of things. You put the artichoke in the middle, you drizzle the sauce around it with a little bit on top, you know, and put the salt and pepper. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, the, the eye does a lot of things with food before you eat it. It's not always a flavour. Yeah, I uh, completely agree. And, uh, I mean, it is a flavour, obviously, but... You also want it to look beautiful. Yeah, like, I yeah. um, I know you said not to put water near asparagus, but the remaining asparagus that you gave me that I hadn't eaten on the way home, I just um, had steamed that very quickly. Yeah, yeah there's I no f- sharp... And then I had that with a poached egg yeah. and then just a little bit of this capsicum sofrito I'm yeah. making, just salt and pepper because I'm on like a calorie reduction diet. It was so good. It was just like nothing. Like just the poached egg created a sauce and then yeah. I think I put a little bit of lemon juice on it. Sounds great. And it was such an, a lovely meal, really. Yeah. Um, back to the artichokes. What I was surprised at with those artichokes was the actual stem yeah. as well. And so the stem was also really yummy. Yeah, it, it was really nice you can to eat. eat. It. Yeah. Depending, sometimes you can eat it one or two inches down the stem before yep. it starts to get fibrousy. Yeah, because that's got a continuation of the meat from the heart yeah. in it. Yeah, it's so good. Now you've got board beans there, and I know you can actually eat the little tips of the leaves of the board beans. You can steam them. How soon will you be harvesting board beans? Well, we've had a few meals already from them. Uh, Milo, my daughter, cooked a meal the other day. You can cook the whole pod when they're small. Oh, okay. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. They're I've had it in Spain and stuff, so not the big when they're big and yeah. heavy, but when the pods are small, it's like a bean almost. It's like a bean. Yeah, you can eat the whole thing. Yeah, and they're yummy. Yeah. And what's the favourite way you like to eat board beans? Big question is: 
do you double peel them? That's the big question. <laughs> I it's a hard one. I, I mean, I would the, think you do that if they're really yeah, mature tough. and yeah, tough. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's an amazing thing when you double peel them. Though the flavour is it's th- so there's, beautiful. There's a different flavour in the outside shell that when that comes off, and it's a really soft, beautiful flavour just yeah. from the inside, which is masked by the outside one. And when they're fresh, I would just boil them or steam them for. Only a couple of minutes and toss them in a bit of butter or olive oil with mint or something. Yeah, they're something, so lovely. Something really, really simple, you know, oregano. Yeah. 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 I think once maybe in Melbourne we had like, a, you know, so many board beans which we'd grown. And I think one thing I do remember, we did this while we were travelling, that I peeled them and then I made a little just a, like a pistu or something with mm-hmm. the insides of the, the board bean with a little bit of olive oil and lemon juice, a bit of garlic yeah. and just almost ate that as a dip or even just by the spoonful. Yeah. yeah. So is there a link between gardens and your interest in, in hunting? It's about food, yeah. I mean, hunting is like producing your own food. Not that I do much hunting these days. I always taught my kids that try to involve them in the process of death because saying that something has to die if you're going to eat it you know, on your plate. It's good to be involved in that process and, yeah. and to honour it in some way. I was thinking about all the quails that you killed. Like, did you have any, you know, do you have any emotional attachment to those quails? No, no, they're pretty, <laughs> they're pretty dumb quail. But I always say sorry to the roosters when I'm going to kill them, do a cockle or something like that. I didn't say sorry to the quail. I sort of no. might have said sorry. But I think people <laughs> who can kill animals and prepare them to eat, like I think that's an amazing skill to have. Yeah. And very few people I think have it. A lot of people had it once. Yes, but not, not in contemporary yeah. sort of living or with, there's less wild country out there. There's more people. It's I get it. Why, you know, if everyone went off hunting, forget it. Yes, I know <laughs> there'd be nothing left. It's like if you go to sort of Europe and places, there's there's, yeah. there's no birds in the sky. So no, we don't want that to happen. Yeah. yeah. Something that you do cook and you cook this really well, and it's you don't actually go and catch the the seafood in it. But I know you probably would like to. I wonder if you've ever cooked cooked bouillabaisse with seafood that you've cooked yourself. But you it is one of your specialty dishes. And I thought it'd be nice to sort of wrap up today's show and just talk about bouillabaisse and why you like it. And you know and have you I mean it's got fennel in it. That would be you would you generally use fennel from your garden? Um, if I've got, if if I've got, got it, it yeah. fennel seeds too. You know? yeah. yeah. So I went and had a look at quite a few recipes and it's um, it seems to be really broad-ranging yeah. how to – and it's quite complex and I've never approached it ever. What do you like about bouillabaisse as a, as a dish? I love the way it looks in the dish, you know, with the, the colour, which is, comes from the, the rue. The colour of the, the sauce and the stock, bits of fish floating in it, a few – green peas or something, a few mussels that have just opened up. I love the way it, 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 it's presented as, as a dish, you know. It's, a, yeah. it's, it's like a beautiful work of art. Yeah. But it's a, it's a pretty simple dish but it's, it has a quite a few complex steps. Yeah. It, we, I know that sounds like a contradiction. It's complex is the wrong word. You have to make a good fish stock first. So you're not buying a fish stock, you have to make your own fish stock? Yeah, I would never buy fish stock. I would make it. Yep. And you put whatever you want to put in that. A few carrots, a bit of onion, fish heads. So I buy the buy the fish heads from Woolies or something okay. to make the stock, you know. Or ask them if they've got any. A bit of fish in it, you know. But mainly I'm using the fish heads to make the stock. 
And I don't imagine you cook this for a long time with fish stock, do you? It's not like maybe, say, a chicken stock. I cook it for... Maybe I cook it too long. I don't know. I cook it for like an hour and a half. Oh, okay. So. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm actually a really inexperienced yeah. seafood cook, so yeah. I'm really yeah. interested to know. I'm just trying you to know, extract how you how you cook bouillabaisse. I'm just um, trying to extract all the flavours out of it, and yeah. then obviously straining it, and you get this beautiful yellowy rich stock. You know. Then you make a a rouille, which is a, a sauce made from basically a red sauce. It's got saffron, red pepper, which is roasted, and then you take the skin off, tomato, which you take the skin off, potato to thicken it, and the fish stock. And are you cooking all these items separately? No, or it's are all you cooked together. You do the saffron separately, yeah. add, add that a bit later. So onions, garlic? Uh, celery, onions, is there an onion in it? Maybe a shallot or something. Okay. I, I have to, I, um, I'm a great fan of looking up cookbooks, you know, and I've yeah. got a really good bullet-based recipe. So, <laughs> you just go back to it. Yeah, I just go back. I open the book. You know, did you eat it somewhere first? Is that where you got the inspiration from? No, did you have? No, okay, no. I just came across it in the cookbook one day. And you thought I want to do that? Yeah, and then you make the rue. What else? There's another sauce too. You make with it at the end, and then you put the fish stock and you you cook the fish in a big wide pan. So you've strained the fish stock so it's nice and clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you're heating that up. And Again. then you add your, yeah, you add your fish. You might add a few green things to it at yep. the end, the mussels. Something from your garden maybe? Yeah, yeah. yeah like we grow snow peas, beans. And maybe broad beans. Sugar and peas, whatever. Yeah. Broad beans would be beautiful. Yeah. yeah, they would be great. And then you spoon the roue onto each person's plate after you serve it and a few slices of lemon. And Is there egg, egg yolk in the roue? No. No, okay. no. no. So it's this it, kind of it's quite thick. thick. It's yeah, quite I've thick. been really surprised. I was thick. really surprised the first time that I think I ate it at your place that yeah. there was this rouge uh, on yeah. the top of it because it's it's quite beautiful though. It kind of yeah. it, there's like because there's quite a few different elements happening there between the the stock and then the seafood, mm. yeah. and then rouge. And then do you serve it with bread? So, yeah, well? always serve bread. I, when you make the bouillabaisse, you fry up some onion, fennel seeds. Maybe a bit of garlic, maybe not, because garlic's too strong for that. Yeah, no, you probably no, no avoid it for there's seafood. No yeah. yeah, there's no garlic in it for sure. We, we, we go through kilos of garlic a week. We eat so much garlic. I, know, I don't know if it's good for you or bad for you. But I don't know. But did you know <laughs> that at Alikarang Centre Farm have just harvested all this garlic and yeah. I'm really wishing it would turn up here, but I don't think yeah. it will. Anyhow, that's an aside. Well, we've got a, I've got a couple of hundred garlic bulbs in my garden. There's nothing only, like fresh garlic. That will last us for probably three or four, five months. Yeah. And then we've run out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I put some online this year. It was terrible. Mm. It was just not good at all. So So we, we nod it and hang it yeah. in the kitchen above the sink. And it lasts for a really long time like that. My, yeah. my father-in-law would give us, Mark and I, a, a plats of that yeah. that he'd yeah. grown in Tassie. But anyhow, so I'm completely gone sideways here so yeah. be, because there's no garlic in bouillabaisse. Yeah. What inspires you when you decide to cook it? Is it that you, you go to Milnor or you go to the supermarket and you see that seafood's yeah, a good exactly. price? It's, right, okay. I don't, don't go to a shop saying I, w- I want to cook this, yeah. really. I'm, I go saying what looks the best. And then I'll work out how to cook it later. Yeah. Whatever I think. Because seafood is very expensive here yeah, at, at the yeah, moment, yeah. yeah. That's why we're growing our own fish, yeah. Yeah, would you make, would you use the fish? I don't know. Yeah. There are probably about five or 600 grams, the biggest ones. They're nearly ready to harvest. Yeah. yeah. And what would you, how would you cook your perch? I don't know. 
not sure. Okay. And how long have they been grown for? They've been there for about two years now because I hadn't been feeding them a lot and they've just been living yeah. off whatever they could. You do almost have a farm there where, yeah. where you are. It's quite beautiful. But now I'm feeding them every day. And they're getting yeah. Yeah. And so your asparagus is finished for the year? No, no, it's still got another one. Okay. I started harvesting in the beginning of August. It's now two months, about another three weeks. Okay. So when I saw it the other day, there was, there was just the little ones coming up. That's because so. I just cut all the big ones. Okay. So you will get a, a, a few more crops out of that? No, every day that I get a crop. So asparagus grows. the asparagus grows. It grows 12 inches in a day. That sounds like a lie, but it's, not, it's true. And how old are your asparagus crowns? Harry, one of my sons, is 28. I reckon I'm 27, maybe 26 or 27 years, the oldest ones, because I moved them from McKinley Street to Myrtle Court and then from Myrtle Court I've moved them to Christmas Street, to home. So they've moved three times, but they transplant really easily in the, uh, when they go into a dormant stage, you just dig the crowns up. And, and they do grow very well in the desert. Yeah, because they need cold. We get the cold winters to put them into a dormant stage. Yeah. Has it taken you like a, a while to understand what grows well here in the desert and what doesn't? Or it's just like trial and error over I've the years? I've grown a lot of different things. I've even had crops of raspberries here. In the, oh, really? Yeah. Really beautiful raspberries. Yeah. What's your secret to – because your garden is prolific. Well, we've got good soil structure because over the years it's washed down from the hill, I think, you know, the big hill that envelops the back of our house and uh, – there's a big waterfall that comes down when it rains and stuff. I just go down to and pick up a couple of loads of um, cow manure and hay and then I compost the chicken stuff. Yeah. And I, I don't do any spraying. Pretty lazy, you know. But we had 800 kilos of grapes on those vines last year. We've got the peach tree, which is full of peaches, two big apricot trees, which are full of apricots. Then we've got all the citrus. There is a major joy in life is to pick fruit and eat it straight yeah. off the tree when it's warm like that. And we're lucky because we're just a little bit away from other houses. Yeah. So we haven't had fruit fly yet. I'm not saying we won't get it, but with, you know, touch wood, we're six years there now and we've had yeah. no fruit fly. The other thing you noted to me about the problem with my garden was that you, your garden is like full sunlight, isn't yeah. it? And you don't use shade cloth in, I, in the summer? The big garden next to the chicken shed yeah. has got shade cloth on it. So that becomes like a... But stuff grows all the way around because we've got all the ponds. Yeah. And that creates a, like a little microclimate <laughs> with moisture in the air. So. You do have a farm. It's like yeah. a micro farm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fish, chickens, vegetables. Tomatoes? You've got tomatoes yeah. ready to grow? Yeah. Yeah, we have a lot of tomatoes. That wow. We're harvesting them all. It sounds like you don't let this desert environment stop you from growing anything. And it's an amazingly fortunate situation where we can actually grow subtropical fruits here and as well as cold climate stone fruits and stuff. Yeah, it is amazing. You can grow mangoes here once you protect them from frost. Yeah. You can grow bananas in Alice Springs. Yeah. Have you? No, I haven't, but you can. I'm sure if anybody can, you can. I know people who have. (laughs) We're going to have to wrap it up there, Michael. Thank you so much. I'm sort of feeling like, I don't know, I need to go and eat a whole lot of fruit or go and raid my mulberry tree at home because actually I've got lots and lots of mulberries at the moment. Well, thanks, Rita. You know, it's been great. We're going to go out tonight with a special tribute to your mum. Do you want to sort of announce this song? My mum passed away a couple of years ago. She was pretty special. But she always said, oh, I want this song played at my funeral because I used to play this song, this Bob Dylan song on the guitar when I was younger. And I'm going, why do you want that song played at your funeral? She said, I don't know. She said, it means something. 
It means nothing, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, I was with her when she died and I sang it to her just before she died, a cappella, and she sort of, I got to the last verse and she sort of died. Yeah. And uh, I got to the last line and she died. Took two breaths and she died. That was pretty full on. Mm-hmm. I thought, God, my singing hasn't improved. <laughs> anyway. So we're, um, don't think twice. Yeah. It's all right. Yeah. Bob Dylan, thank you so much, Michael Watts, for chatting today. You've been listening to Kitchen Radio. My name's Rita Catoni. Tune in. Maybe in a fortnight I'm going to be away, actually in Jordan in October, so I'm not quite sure if I'll be here again till late October. But uh, keep listening. There'll definitely be something on uh, every second Saturday.